Father, thank you for the joy in the room and for the love and the fellowship you've uh, created in all of us through your spirit. Thank you for my dear brothers and sisters here today and for the way that they corporately have uh, made this place as special as it is. But we know, Father, all of this is to your glory. We give credit where it's due that you have done this in us and through the spirit have made this place what it is. And, Father, we are so quick. I, I will speak as, as one from speaking of myself. I am so quick, Father, to, to know what needs to be fixed or changed or made better, even if I'm not able to do it in all cases. But uh, let's reflect, Father. Let us reflect on all that has happened in your power, all the goodness of this place over the years and the way you've used it to support missionaries, grow up families in the Word, be a place in which men and women can come and and uh, know you better, follow you better. These are the things that matter most. And so we are thankful, Lord, for that. And it's because, not least of all, because of your word. It's my contention, Father, that, that you have been so faithful to this small church and kept it going in days when we might have guessed it wouldn't because you have honored your word and you have honored a place that puts your word first. And so we continue to do that. And today we do as well, Father, as we go into your word. And I know, Father, your word is, is speaking in the hearts of each person here, perhaps in a slightly different way, on different issues in their life, though always from the same consistent truth. And I, I ask, Father, that way, the way I would present it would be in keeping with that truth so that you can use it to the greatest opportunity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's continue in Paul's discussion of spiritual gifts. That's where we've gone into from last week, spiritual gifts in the body. We're studying how spiritual gifts in the body contribute to the unity of our body. Unity has been his topic actually all the way back from chapter 3. And Paul has said that God's call for unity in the church is a wonderful blessing of the Spirit of God. And I think it's a reflection of the sense of humor of God. Because in the church, God has taken from every walk of life, from every different culture, from different languages even, different perspectives, and he has told this diverse group, you are united, you are one, in fact. And that unity would defy human nature when you think about it. But I think that's exactly the point that God is trying to make through this body of Gentiles, the the worldwide church, uniting a group of people who are naturally different but spiritually unified. And in that way, the body of Christ, you could say, is an opposite to the nation of Israel. Because in the case of Israel, God created a people out of nothing. They began as a single family created out of a covenant and set apart from all other people. So you could say Israel was like a box of Cheerios. They were almost identical to one another, but unique in the world from anything else. In contrast to that, God made his church to be like a box of Fruit Loops. Some of us fruitier than others. Each of us is very different from another. Everyone in this room comes in a different color, so to speak, a rainbow of colors, different flavors. But God has knit us together into a common gathering, a body of believers who reflects the world's diversity. And we too, like Israel, were set apart. But we're set apart spiritually, even as we are very different individually. And the key to maintaining this oxymoronic unity through diversity situation is spiritual gifts, or the spiritual gifts that God has given to his body. And last week we learned that the Lord took great steps to give the church saints the things that we have so that we're connected in a sense to what came before him and to what will come after. He descended in the lower parts of the earth into Sheol, we saw last week, to preach to captives and to eventually set them free so they can enter heaven. 
And it said at that time that he also gave gifts to men, to the church. And he did this to communicate to you and I, to the church, that we are just as much a part of his family as those who came before the Old Testament saints in Israel. It even implies the transition of dispensations where the Old Testament saints have now been collected and removed and taken home, now a new phase of God's plan begins for a new group of saints under different conditions with gifts being given that weren't given in the past, and so on. All of it part of a single plan. So now what we do in chapter 4, beginning in verse 11, is we're going to explain how these gifts function to create unity in the body of Christ, beginning in verse 11. Let's start there. Paul says in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In this passage you find one of... Three lists of spiritual gifts that are available to us in the New Testament. All three of these lists, where they are found in the New Testament, all three are written by Paul. So in addition to the one we have here, we have one in 1 Corinthians and we have one in Romans. And all three of these lists differ at least a little one from another. And the context of each one makes it clear as you read them that Paul was providing each list simply as an example to make a larger point about spiritual gifts. And his point differs in each case. Each list of example gifts supports a different perspective on spiritual gifts. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul explains the proper regulation of gifts within the corporate gathering. In Romans, Paul explains the proper attitude we're to have towards spiritual gifts in the body. And here in Ephesians, Paul is explaining the purpose of of gifts within the body. And therefore, Paul's lists are not intended or should not be seen as some comprehensive inventory of spiritual gifts available in the body of Christ. In fact, it's my contention that there is no list of all the spiritual gifts available in the body. That even if you were to combine all three of the lists that we find in the New Testament, you still would not have a complete list of all the gifts that are available within the body. There are certainly people who would say otherwise, and the point is really not that important either way. The main issue is that the spiritual gifts in Paul's lists are to be understood within the context in which Paul is using each of these lists. Some of these I do not believe are available anymore within the church. And there are others that are only available under certain circumstances. So maybe the point for the morning is let's keep an open mind about how God is using spiritual gifts. And yet at the same time, let's remain grounded in scripture for what is possible. So let's look at the details of the passage this morning. Paul explains the central purpose of spiritual gifts in the body in this passage. And he begins with three important words. He gave some. And those three words each have a lot of theological importance for us this morning. And if we were to overlook them or breeze past them, we're going to be likely to come to wrong conclusions about spiritual gifts, as some have done. So I'm going to spend a few minutes on each one. The first word is he. And obviously that pronoun refers to Christ because it refers back to the person who is being discussed in verse 10. That is the one who descended and ascended. Obviously that's Christ. So Christ is the one in charge of spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts are not under our control. Or they are not under the control of another person. Like a pastor, for example. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, Paul teaches that spiritual gifts are according to the will of God. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians. 
And so the Bible teaches consistently that Christ forever is in charge of or in control of spiritual gifts. That brings us to the second word, gave. Christ gave us our spiritual gifts. Just like any gift, there's a giver and there's a receiver. We didn't lobby for it. We didn't request it. God made a sovereign choice to equip you with a certain gift. You notice that the first gift on Paul's list, as we read it, is the gift of apostle. You notice that? And, of course, you know that's Paul's gift, right? That was the one that Paul received. He was an apostle. But do you remember how he received his gift? The story of him in Acts chapter 9? Do you remember how he gets his gift? Paul received his gift in exactly the same moment that the Lord brought Paul to faith on the road to Damascus. Do you remember the scene? He had arrested Paul and then... He asked Paul, why do you persecute me? And then he sends Paul away to a city and he says, I have to show him all that he has to suffer for me because I'm going to send him to the Gentiles. It's clear that the Lord already had Paul's gift in mind even before Paul knew him. It was all part of the plan. So Christ gave Paul the gift of apostle and there was never a moment when the Lord asked Paul what he wanted. There was no choice in the matter. Paul had just as little choice in what gift he received, as he did in joining the body of Christ in the first place. There's no choice in this process. And for the same reason, your gift was appointed to you by Christ, given to you at the moment of your salvation. I can assure you on the basis of Scripture, you have, as you sit here today, believers, you have received a Christ-given, Spirit-enabled ability to serve the body of Christ, even if you don't know what it is. Most of us do not receive a clear word from the Lord concerning our gift in the way that Paul did. Paul had no doubts about what his gift was almost from the outset of his coming into faith. Most of us don't get that clarity day one. So most of us have to come to know our gift through experience, through trial and error. I like to tell people God does not steer a stationary object. So you need to start moving and see what works and what doesn't. And as you work in the body of Christ and you realize what doesn't work, well, that's one less thing you have to try. But when you find out how you're wired by the Holy Spirit and it all clicks, you'll know. And then finally, the third word, Paul says, some. Everyone in the body of Christ receives a spiritual gift according to the will of God. But we don't all receive the same gift. Paul says the Lord gave some to be an apostle and some, meaning others, to be a prophet and on and on. The point is, God doesn't give everyone in the body of Christ a common spiritual gift. There is no such thing as a gift everyone has. So if I take all three of these words together, I establish a theological understanding, at least in part, for how spiritual gifts come to the body. And what I learned is that Christ selects and controls the gifts that each believer receives. He delivers the gift to us by means of His Spirit at the moment of our faith according to His will. And He intentionally diversifies the gifts within a given body by assigning different gifts to different people. Now consider that He knew that at least at some moment in time, this church here in Austin, would have this particular group of people present, and he had that in mind as he determined how to distribute the spiritual gifts so that in the day we have today, as the one we had a year ago or the one we'll have a year from now, there will be the diversity necessary for what he wants to accomplish in this body. You'll never have a day when randomly everyone in here shows up with exactly the same spiritual gift. God in his omniscience and sovereignty has precluded that possibility so that there's always the available diversity necessary. Now, it may shift a little from time to time in keeping with his purposes, but it's always going to be diverse. 
If you ever find someone who's teaching about operating in a way that is contrary to what you just saw on the page of Scripture, you have a theological foundation on which to say, that ain't right. The teaching's not right, and if people are trying to practice according to it, then they're not in keeping with the authority of Scripture. Because God is not giving everyone the same gift. And you'll see even more clearly as we move through the passage why it makes no sense for him to do it. Why actually, if he were to do it, it would work counter to the very purpose of gifts. So let's turn to Paul's short list of gifts. This list is unique compared to the other two that I've mentioned, at least in one way. In this particular list, Paul emphasizes a set of spiritual gifts that are all key to the unity of the body. Now, all gifts have some place in unity, but there are particular gifts that are uniquely important to establishing unity in the body, that in fact, without these gifts, it would be almost impossible to unify the body of Christ in function, at least, if not in spirit. And so Paul emphasizes these particular ones. These are some of the most important gifts God gives, period. And for that reason, they are commonly associated with leadership roles. But let me add something here, friends. With the exception of the gift of apostle, these other ones are not automatically offices of authority in the church. They are spiritual abilities that may or may not lead to a leadership position in the church. The only exception in that list to what I just said is apostle. The apostles were men appointed by Christ personally to bring the message of the Messiah to the world in the first century. The word apostle means one sent with a message, and it refers to the person who is the first to bring good news to a place. They had a uniquely difficult mission in that respect, because they traveled into areas of the world preaching a Jewish Messiah to a Gentile audience who hadn't had a clue what a Messiah was or why they needed one. And they entered into cultures that cared nothing about Jewish teachings whatsoever, and many of them were actually hostile to a Jewish Messiah or any kind of Jewish teaching. Even worse, when they were doing this role, they were doing it without the benefit of 2,000 years of church history supporting all of their claims, and they had no New Testament scripture in order to talk to, to point to in defending what they said. No one had heard of Jesus. No one had any clue what they were talking about. They had no allies waiting to receive them, and they had enemies everywhere. That's the job of an apostle. You want to sign up for that? Now, under those circumstances, no ordinary evangelist would have even stood a chance. So the Lord equipped certain men in special ways to reach the world and to establish the church. And he uses men we call apostle to do that. And they have two unique qualities. Their gift, their spiritual gift, came with two things that really made them equal to the task that they were given. First, these men possessed supernatural insight into the Word of God. They received supernatural understanding of Old Testament prophecies that had long eluded others. And they received new revelation from God, which eventually they wrote down, and it became our New Testament canon of Scripture. So the authors of New Testament Scripture are apostles. You could call them the New Testament prophets for that reason. But more than that, it's a position of authority in the early church. Authority to establish the church in unreached places and authority to dictate what was proper practice within the church. Everyone who was called an apostle legitimately was appointed by Christ through a personal appearing, like Paul on the road to Damascus or like the original 11 that Jesus appointed, not counting Judas. And every one of them then became a personal representative of Christ on the ground. They had supreme authority over the flock 
And every one of those men could dictate, as God appointed, what happened within the church. And just to make sure everyone in the church understood they had this authority that they were claiming, God gave them supernatural abilities. Things they could do to demonstrate and validate that their word was backed up by the power of God. In the Bible, you'll see examples of these men doing things like supernatural healing, sometimes with nothing more than their shadow, in the case of Peter. Or they could pronounce a judgment against a a disobedient believer, and they would see that judgment carried out supernaturally, instantly, even from a distance. They had the ability to be bitten by poisonous snakes and survive. They could raise the dead to life even. Paul does that after he preached so long the guy fell out the window. Those special abilities are a part of how Jesus validated each of these apostles' right to teach and their right to lead in the church. You couldn't really contest with someone who could pronounce you dead on the spot and you fell over dead. You had to respect that authority. All right, so apostle is the highest gift God has ever given to anyone within the church, but Jesus only gave it out for a time. By the end of the first century, the church was well established, the New Testament canon was complete, And therefore, there was no longer any need for the office of apostle. The two things they were gifted to do had been done. And so the last apostle, Apostle John, as we traditionally assume, he died near the end of the first century. And with him, the gift of apostleship died as well. It's obvious how Jesus would have used a gift like this to create unity. Back to the main topic, unity. How does the gift of apostleship ensure unity? Well, the unified church came as a result of a common understanding of the creeds and doctrines and practices of a faith that had not existed until they established it, as Christ did through them. And, furthermore, by their authority, as they advanced the good news around the world, even as they protected the church from those who were trying to attack the faith, they ensured that it found its way around the world undistorted from how it began. You ever played the telephone game in school? You know what I'm talking about? The one they play with kids? So you whisper in one person's ear and that person starts whispering in the one next to them. And by the time that chain gets to the end of the room, the last kid is talking about something completely unrecognizable to what was said the first time. It's just the natural process of us misunderstanding and repeating. Well, you can't have that happen when you're talking about the salvation God has appointed to men on earth, men and women on earth. You can't have the message changing as it moves around the world. As far as God needed it to go, the apostles carried it in a consistent way. It's fair to say that without the apostles, the church wouldn't have survived at all, much less been unified. So we can clearly see the power of that gift. But as the last apostle died, that most powerful unifying gift no longer would be apostle, but we still need unity, so where does it go? Well, it shifted to the next one on the list. After apostles were gone, prophets continued to guide the church in understanding the word of God. The revelation of God, the Bible, was complete in the apostles. The Old Testament was already there, of course. Now the New Testament canon was finished. But the early church still needed a lot of help to understand the meaning of what was in this book. Remember, access to copies of Scripture would have been difficult for most people. Even literacy was not universal. Often it was written in a language that the average person didn't understand. So how does the church continue to grow in its understanding of what's in this book after the last apostle is gone. Well, God equipped some with a gift to relate Scripture to the church. And this prophetic gift that Paul's talking about is different than the apostolic gift of writing or authoring Scripture. And you know it's different just because it's listed here. It's a different item on the list. But since we know apostles were prophets also, we need to distinguish between what it meant to be an apostolic prophet versus a prophet 
in general. The difference is this. The gift of prophecy does not involve revealing new scripture. Scripture itself says no one may add or subtract from the word of God after the final word was given to the Apostle John. John himself wrote those words at the end of Revelation, which, by no coincidence, is the last book in the Bible, also the last one written chronologically, the last time God gave any revelation. God's revelation ends with a warning. Don't add any more words. I've said all I want. So the gift of prophecy is not that. It is different. It is providing supernatural understanding of God's word. So a prophet would be someone who could reveal the proper meaning of Scripture to a generation where that understanding has been lost. Like during the Reformation. During the Reformation, you had men coming out of seemingly nowhere explaining things that had long been lost because of the way the Catholic Church had distorted the meaning of Scripture. Or even today, you may find God raising up men who are prophets to bring a knowledge of Scripture to places where the Word of God itself is not physically available, like in China. And yet God wants to bring his word to someone. He's not dependent on paper and ink. So he may bring it to the heart of a man who doesn't otherwise have it available. He hasn't studied it. No one ever taught it to them. But God, through the Spirit, brings into the mind of that man scripture so that he can relate that scripture and its intended meaning into a given setting. So unlike the gift of apostle, prophets can continue, even in today, as long as we understand it in this way. Particularly in areas of the world where access to God's word is limited, the Lord may move through a prophet to bring this knowledge of himself. The prophetic speech doesn't add to scripture, doesn't compete with scripture, it doesn't try to predict the future, that's not the point, it's not a game. The goal, though, is to echo scripture, to bring it to life in the hearts of those who lack an understanding or lack access. I think it's easy to see once more how this gift promotes unity. Because in the body of Christ, unity always begins with a proper understanding of God's word. Why do you think we have so many different views on basic Christian doctrine and the resulting denominational splits that come with it? It's not because the word isn't clear. It's because we're not. The more you don't understand this, the more you divide. The more you understand it, the more you come together. Because the word of God is the sanctifying, unifying force in the body of Christ. Jesus himself prayed to the Father on our behalf in this way. John 17, 17. He says to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus says the church is sanctified, made holy. You can even say made complete by a unity in the truth. So, a gift like the gift of prophecy that promotes a proper understanding of the Word of God, it's of first importance if we're going to strive for unity in the body. If men are sent to us with truth that is intended to bind us, we have the obligation to come to those moments with a teachable heart, don't we? If we're too headstrong about what we think we know from what someone else told us somewhere in the past, that turns out to be wrong, but we don't like to be wrong, so we're not going to change our mind, Well, there goes the unity opportunity that God was creating through the presentation of truth. If you're someone who thinks you know everything, don't bother studying anymore. You're wasting your time. On the other hand, if you think study still has value, well, then you should be prepared to change your mind when the scriptures come to bear on something you thought you knew. I change my mind all the time on things. That's just the natural consequence of teaching and of of learning. When you look at the rest of the list, the principle stays the same. Evangelist. The word in Greek means someone who brings glad tidings or good news. But the gift is more than just witnessing. I think our modern view of what it means to be an evangelist is a bit stunted. Anyone can evangelize. In fact, everyone should evangelize to some degree. 
But the gift of evangelism is beyond the norm. The gift of evangelism is a supernatural combination of courage and boldness with tactfulness and apologetics. This is a potent combination, but it's actually quite rare in my experience. I see a lot of people, including myself, who will evangelize, but we're missing one of those components sometimes, and it makes for a harder job. But someone with a gift of evangelism has this supernatural ability to initiate conversations about Christ when no one else would have the courage to do it. They'll enter dangerous places without hesitation. They'll endure persecution, and yet they won't back down on the message. Most importantly, they bring a solid biblical defense of Jesus to those moments. The gift of evangelism includes this supernatural ability to communicate the good news accurately. That person understands salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. They don't have to be a scholar. Some of them aren't particularly well studied. I've run into people with a gift of evangelism on other sides of the world where they may have like a fifth grade education. They're not coming at it from this part of their body. They're coming at it from this part of their body. But man, can they address an issue when it comes to apologetics? And they have a zeal about them that just cannot be quenched. And yet they can be diplomatic. They can be very personable. They're not arrogant. But they get the job done. The spirit in them gives them a defense they need to explain the truth accurately before kings and authorities and common people. And when they do it, it works. And you can see how the Lord would use this to unify, right? The evangelists amongst us unify us in mission and in purpose. They get our heads pointed outside this building when they need to be. You see them moving and you feel courage to follow them. And the second way they unify us is they bring converts back to strengthen the church, which is a unifying effect. They ensure the growth of the church is moving ahead, but on a proper theological foundation. They will distinguish themselves in style and in results. As I said earlier, they're kind of wired to talk about Jesus. If you and I were to stand in a checkout line at the grocery store and were to think to ourselves, you know, I should probably mention Jesus to this clerk. That's what a good Christian would do. But for us, usually that moment just kind of comes and goes. We leave the store and we didn't say anything and we're sort of regretting that we didn't. A gifted evangelist leaves that same checkout line and he has presented the gospel, he's got a response, he's made an appointment for their baptism. In the time it takes them to check him out. They're bold, they just speak up, they don't hesitate. But more importantly, or as importantly, as they speak, the Lord is working through them because he gave them the gift for that reason, and they get a response when others wouldn't. So this gift is not a replacement for our individual efforts at witnessing. We don't get to say, oh, I have an evangelist in the church. But instead, they inspire us, they lead us into that work. They create unity in the sense that they put us all on the right path for the mission, and they lead us into it. And then finally, pastors and teachers. In the Greek language, the construct of that phrase suggests actually a single compound title, not two different ones. So it would seem Paul is describing a gift called pastor-teacher. In Romans, where Paul lists gifts, he includes the gift of teacher in that list, but he doesn't mention pastor at that time, which would suggest then that there are separate gifts of teacher and pastor-teacher. In my personal view, though, I don't see that separation. I'm talking now just from my own experience, which may not be accurate, but I don't think it's practical to separate those two gifts. Because biblically speaking, all pastors must be able to teach. And all teachers are engaged in shepherding the flock. So I don't know how you separate the two. In my experience, the gift is pastor-teacher, though some will have a greater ability in one side of that than in others. 
I have far more ability to teach than I have to pastor, but I've never found a way to teach without that inevitably running into pastoral duties. Even just as a Sunday school teacher, people come up to you and ask you, will you baptize me? Will you do my wedding? Can you counsel us? The first two or three times that happened to me, right after I started teaching, my first thought was, is this legal? I don't think I can do this. No one's approved me to do this. Because your thinking is, I'm a teacher, and God's saying, well, you're a pastor, you're a shepherd, you're leading people. What do shepherds do? They lead flocks to grass so they can eat. The whole point is it's a, it's a combined thing. You really don't have any way to separate them. So the pastor-teacher gift is, I think, a combined ability to do those two things. But remember, as I said earlier, these gifts are not the same things as roles. They don't mean authority automatically. So a person with the gift of pastor-teacher is not necessarily an authority figure in the church. You receive your spiritual gift at the moment you come to faith. We don't make people an authority on day one of their faith just because on day one they got the gift of pastor-teacher, right? That's not how it works. So you could be a Sunday school teacher with a pastor-teacher gift. You could just be someone who teaches without any formal office or any particular position. But even still, you're shepherding God's people as you teach. This final gift is obviously the most common one on the list in our churches today. It's one we still depend on today. You'll notice how all these gifts, though, center on building up the body of Christ through a knowledge of His Word. They all center on that one quality. And there is no substitute for unifying believers through an understanding of God's Word. There's no substitute. You cannot, as a body of Christ, truly be unified if you don't share a common understanding of what it is that calls you together, what it is you believe in. And I should add, unity is a means to an end in any case. Notice in verse 12, Paul says these gifts come to the church for the purpose of equipping you and me. Paul says it's for the equipping of the saints. Now, obviously, you and I are the saints, and the word equipping can be translated training. It's the same word for training. So think about what he's saying. Paul's saying that you and I come into a building like this at least once a week, on average, I guess, and we do so to be trained by someone who possesses a certain gift, and in the case of the list here, people who have an ability to relate truth, to help guide us into living according to Scripture. And that's why Paul says elsewhere in Scripture that this gathering is for the believer. Fundamentally, it's made, it's scripted and designed to meet the needs of believers. It is not designed, nor should it be designed, to accommodate the interests of unbelievers. They're welcome. If they show up, we hope that we can be of some use to them and influence them for the sake of the gospel. Certainly, that's still something we want. But we don't design the program here on the expectations of what they need. They're just icing on the cake if they come in. The room and what we do is designed to support the needs of you and I, the believer. Because we've come here to be trained, to be built up. At the end of verse 12, Paul says our equipping and our building up here is supposed to strengthen us corporately. Build up the body. Notice it's singular. It's not bodies. And that's important because if you overlook that point, you're forgetting that Christianity is a team sport. You and I are supposed to be strengthened together so that if someone is dragging behind within this body, we're supposed to close ranks around that person and figure out how it is we get them to move with us in the walk that we're all engaged in. It's not acceptable to us to sit back in our part of the church, on our little pew, and say, I'm so glad that I'm getting what I need out of this room. If that's the extent of our concern, you haven't really connected to the body yet. You're not thinking about it in the right way. Don't take personal satisfaction in your own knowledge of Scripture if at the same time someone sitting around you is ignorant of Scripture. That doesn't make us busybodies, of course. I'm not going to ask us to start inspecting one another. The issue is one of care and concern. So if you have someone you think may need some more help, take it upon yourself to see where that can be done, how that can be done. 
And in particular, gifts like pastor-teacher are supposed to be in the room to identify those discrepancies and address them. A shepherd can't feed just some of the flock, can he? Or lead just a few of them? That doesn't work. In that way, you can see, I guess, even more clearly how a pastor and a teacher work together in that respect. It's like I said, shepherding is a combination of leading flocks and feeding flocks. You've got to do both in the context of a church if you're going to be successful. So whether someone in here is old or young, a new Christian, mature Christian, whatever their situation is, everyone in here has a shared corporate responsibility for their outcome spiritually. Elders, pastors, and the like have a greater share of that responsibility. Fair enough. But it's not merely our responsibility. It's a shared concern. And if someone is doing too much heavy lifting, that is to say, if someone in here is holding a disproportionate share of the movement of the body of Christ, well, that's an opportunity for others to come alongside and pick up some of that and be strengthened with them. There was a a time once when a renowned evangelist, Dr. Lewis Sperry Chafer, he was preaching and leading choir at the same time in this church that he pastored. So he would direct the choir, they would sit down, and then he'd get behind the pulpit and he would preach. And he's a renowned preacher, famous man, pillar of the church in the last couple of centuries. And there was a time after one service when an old lady in the church, one of the dear old ladies, came up to him and said, Dr. Chafer, you're doing too much. You're doing too much. You ought not to preach and to lead the worship choir at the same time. She says, why don't you find someone else to preach? <laughs> Everyone has a stake in the outcome here. Everyone has a role in achieving that. You've heard me preach this, I don't know how many times for how many years, this idea that we come here to gain not only what we can from others, but to contribute in our own way. What I want you to understand is, it's not a would you please. The Bible is making clear from Paul's teaching that you have been given a spiritual gift by God because he expected us to come in a way that was meaningful. A way that had the intentionality of contributing some kind of spiritual benefit to the body according to the way we were gifted. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you don't know your gift, well, I know you're not putting it to work. If you know it, but you haven't made time to use it, you're still not putting it to work. At the end of this, you still have to get to the last step where you haven't fulfilled the purpose God had in giving you a gift. And you're missing something. You don't even realize what could be happening for you in your spiritual walk if you took the last step in that chain and showed up not only with a a desire to be here, but a desire to participate and to do what God's called you to do for the sake of others. You can't imagine what good things can come out of that moment if you've never been there. Paul says we shall continue in this corporate pursuit until, he says, we arrive. Verse 13, Paul says, We are seeking to attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God. What he's saying is this. We're supposed to arrive at a faith equal to Christ's. And we're supposed to arrive at a spiritual knowledge equal to Christ's knowledge. You're sitting there saying, well, Christ's faith never doubted. He never acted contrary to the will of God. How am I going to do that? Or his knowledge of God's word never failed. He, he always had the proper response for the devil. He always knew what to say. I don't know much about the Bible. Well, obviously, Paul's not suggesting we're supposed to equal Christ this side of heaven. That's not his point. He's simply setting the right goal. He's simply setting the standard where it's supposed to be. You're called into a daily walk with Christ in an attempt to reach where Christ is. That's, that's all it is. It's a goal. He sums it up there at the end there. He says, our goal is attaining to the mature man. And you can say woman, obviously. And the word mature in Greek is the same word for complete or perfect. That's your goal. To be completely perfectly like Christ if you could possibly get there this side of heaven. You want to be as much in that direction as you can. That's why you come here, or should be the reason you come here, because you see this place as an important piece to the puzzle in helping you get to that goal. 
No different than business people who have a goal of reaching some status in their business or in their corporate life. And they say, I'm going to take this training. I'm going to get this certification. I'm going to go get that OJT. I've got to do all those things to get to my goal. They're all part of the plan. Well, you're coming here on Sunday and using your spiritual gift is a part of how you get to becoming as completely spiritually mature as you can. And as you get there, as you grow in these areas, setting your sights on Christ and move toward him, something really interesting starts to happen in the body as a whole. As each one of us moves toward Christ, we are all growing closer together. I want you to imagine a triangle. And we're all down on the bottom of this triangle. Christ is at the top, right? And we're all looking up at him as our standard. He's the one that we're trying to equal were it possible. We just want to get as close as we can in our lives. And we're all down here at different starting points. Some of us are a little closer and farther. It's a pyramid of people underneath him. But as you and I start growing toward him, what happens? What happens to us is we start becoming more like him. Because we have a common destination. A.W. Tozer is another famous theologian, and he described this process elegantly using an example of a room full of pianos. You may have heard this analogy. He says, has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos in the same room, all tuned to the same tuning fork, are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. And then he says, likewise, 100 worshipers meeting together, each one looking to Christ, he says, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be, striving for closer fellowship. So that's our goal, to measure up, that is to equal to, the stature, to the height of Christ's fullness and perfection. And we're called to strive there, yes, individually, but you would only achieve it in unity. You can only do it as a body. Many Christians aren't even striving. Others are thinking they can do it alone. But the scriptures say differently. You have to do it together. For God has equipped us in diversity so that what you need is found with someone else in the room. Another way to say it is, if I could list all the spiritual gifts for you, if there were possible for me to do that, that would be your recipe to obtaining to the mature stature of Christ. And you get one of them. Now it's a treasure hunt. You've got to go find all the people in the room who have everything else on the list because until you get them all, you can't get there. That's the idea. So if you stay home, you can't get them. You find church only through the Internet, you can't get them all. You only show up three Sundays a year, you ain't going to get them all. You show up every Sunday but you never talk to anybody or do anything, you ain't going to get them all. That's the thing God has done. He's done it intentionally so that the body has good reason to come together to work as a whole for the glory of Christ. So striving together with each other in the gifts we've been given, that's our advantage. That's why we come together. That's why we want to be trained. And it's all for the glory of Christ. All right, so I have my gift. You guys have your gifts. I need them. I need gifts of prayer. I'm not really a very strong prayer person in nature. I have to struggle a little at prayer. I don't think about it first. It's not my first instinct. I don't have a gift of encouragement. My wife says I have a gift of discouragement. I could go on and on. I have weaknesses up and down that list for all that I might be able to do in one area, man. That doesn't say anything about the rest. Who in here has got a gift to encourage can help me? Who in here has got a gift of prayer that can come alongside and remind me to pray or pray with me? My own spiritual walk is dependent on this regular opportunity for me to be with other men and women who believe the same thing I do. If I give up on this, where do I go? What will I become? I want you to be jealous for it. I want you to be eager for it. That's my thinking, and I hope that's yours too. 
We have such a great community here. God has blessed us in so many ways. You can't find a more loving, open community in which to seek out for these things than this church. And so it's an opportunity we should all be taking advantage of. Let's go to prayer. Father, I am looking forward to um, receiving the gifts from others in here that I need. And I acknowledge, Father, I need many. And I pray, Father, you would use what gift you've given to me to the most you can for the needs of those here and that it would always be available as long as you would desire it to be here and that it would be edifying for those who desire it. And um, I thank you for the many men and women who are serving and continue to serve and will serve here in the future. We don't neglect and overlook them, Father. We recognize them and know them to be a provision you've made. And yet, Father, I'm jealous for for those gifts that may not have been shown yet, that are here but not known. And when we see them, Father, we will marvel all the more at you and what you do through us. So I pray, Father, those gifts would be made manifest as well and that others would come in the future to expand what we are and what we can do in your name. Just make us hungry for these things, Father, for I know that if we're hungry, you will fill us, and if we knock, you will open, and we just want to have the heart that cares for the things you care about, Father. So I pray for this in hope, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.